The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Galatians chapter 3, please open there. We are now in the doctrinal portion of the book of Galatians, or Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. Remember the first two chapters were about really the history of and the authority that Christ granted to Paul when he saved him and commissioned him on the road to Damascus to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And in chapters 3 and 4, we now enter into the doctrinal section of the book in which Paul labors to, to teach and explain what we've called the doctrine of justification by faith. This is an immensely important and vital doctrine to the Christian Faith, And so we slow down over the next several weeks to look at Paul's arguments and explanation of the doctrine of justification so that we can see how it connects to our faith, how it works out in our lives. Because Paul's aim, remember, is not simply theological. He's not here to give us a systematic theology of the faith, but to spur on his readers to live godly lives in light of the doctrines and the truths of the gospel like justification by faith. In fact, one of the charges against Paul and his teaching from his opponents is that Paul, by preaching a doctrine of justification by faith, actually does away with righteous and holy living. Remember last week, one of the the opposition says that if you get rid of the law, there's no way you can live righteously before God. But Paul refutes that idea and says righteousness comes through faith in Christ And from that relationship, you live righteously in faith. And so Galatians 2.20, that famous and quoted verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is laboring to help the Galatians church hold on to the pure and unadulterated gospel so that in it, it can receive its joy and its faithfulness as it lives out the faith according to the teaching of Paul. Let's read from verses 1 to verse 9 in Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that this is that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, says the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What Paul here is doing in the beginning of chapter 3 is launching into an explanation of justification by faith. Now, he's already mentioned here in verses 15 and onwards in chapter 2, the doctrine clearly stated. He says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, there at the end of verse 16, it is not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, the doctrine clearly stated is that if you are to be saved or justified 
which means to be declared righteous before God, it is only possible through faith in Christ. And it is not possible through works of the law, obedience to any moral standard. Your righteousness cannot come from within, but must come, as Luther would say, from an alien source, someone outside of yourself, that is Christ. So the doctrine of justification by faith is very clearly here taught in Scripture. You are not saved by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. They're contrasted against one another. So they're not to be blended together, saved by faith and works, or by faith and then works, but by faith alone and not by works. They are mutually exclusive. Now, this isn't to say that your faith is not demonstrated by your works. The Apostle James in his letter says faith without works is what? Dead. So we must demonstrate the genuineness of our faith through our works, our own faithfulness, our trusting and our dependence upon God and our various trials. The true religion, James would say, demonstrates the genuineness of our faith. So while Paul here says that it is by faith alone we are justified, James, as well as really Paul here in the rest of Galatians, reminds us that our faith is never alone. Though we are justified by faith alone, our faith is never alone. It must work itself out in good and righteous deeds. The difference being that we are not saved through those righteous deeds, but rather the source of those works, those good and righteous deeds, flow from the cross and our faith in Christ, not from within ourselves. That's the point Paul makes in chapter 2. We are not saved or justified by our works or obedience to the law. Here specifically in Galatians, you cannot become a Jew and remain a Christian It is not by circumcision or dietary restrictions or whatever obedience to the law of Moses or any law. It is only through Christ that men are justified. The problem here is that the Galatian churches are abandoning that doctrine. They're setting it aside and embracing a lie that you can be justified by your works that you can only be righteous if you obey the Mosaic law, that it's necessary to remain faithful to Christ and to the Father that you take on circumcision, that you obey the commands of the Old Testament, that you submit yourself to the various rules and regulations and ordinances of the Mosaic law so that you can be in the right covenant relationship with the Lord. Christ opened the door for the Gentiles, but it is still Through the Mosaic law, the Gentiles must come to know and have faith and be saved by God. But Paul denies outright that as a lie. His doctrine here is that, of course, you cannot be saved at all by works of the law, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the Galatians have taken this lie and have allowed it to lead them astray from the gospel which has been once delivered to the Galatian churches now being buried underneath the law. And this is perplexing to Paul. Notice he says there in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, he calls them fools. Who has bewitched you, he says? Who has deceived you? The idea here is somebody has clearly put a spell on you. You're under some sort of delusion or deception, that by earning your righteousness, you can be made right with God. Somebody has led you astray. Something very sinister and evil has happened here. Oh, foolish Galatians. You can hear the exasperation in his voice, right? Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, this is with love, but he calls them something to the effect of, oh, my dear idiots. Why? Have you abandoned the gospel of justification by faith alone? To Paul, this is unacceptable. It's foolish. Let me give you an analogy of something I think what Paul might be imagining here. 
Imagine that you're out to sea on a beautiful sailboat and you make it far out beyond all other boats. You've had a great journey and now it's time to come back inland to home. Now, with a sailboat, there's really only one way to move. You have to put up your sails, the wind has to be fair, and you have to steer your way in to harbor. Now, you've made it out to sea, but instead of putting up the sails to return home, you fold down the sails all the way to the bottom of the mast, and you throw away your oars, and you decide to row yourself with your hands against the tide all the way back to harbor. Now, you and I may be able to do this in calm weather on a small vessel, but many men with many strong hands could not do it in a large boat in rough seas. So just imagine for a moment that you are set out on the beautiful sailboat of the gospel into the ocean of God's love and grace, and you have decided to turn around, throwing away the oars of your salvation and the sail of Christ, and now pedaling with the hands of good work back into the harbor from where you came. As if that wasn't enough, now imagine you have come from a long line of sailors. Your family are expert sailors. World-renowned for the best sailing skills in all of the known world. Not only now would your error be folly, now it's tragic. The splendor and the glory of your family crest, which once adorned the sails as it was in full mass, has now been folded and discarded away. Invisible to the watching world as you paddle around under delusion. How silly, indeed how stupid, is such an idea. Well, the foolishness of the Galatians here was something to that effect. It was that they were closing their eyes to the clear picture of the gospel and to the reality of their justification by faith in Christ. And in so doing, we're about to cut themselves off from the blessing and the promises available to them through the gospel. They had been given a great blessing and gift, and they've decided to set it aside, to put it in a chest, and to row back inward with their hands. Well, friends, let us not assume that this was merely a Galatian problem. How easy is it for us to be deceived? It is not unlike us to believe small but subtle misgivings and misconceptions about the gospel, about our own strength, about the credibility that we provide, about our own authority, that we begin to chip away slowly at the gospel. Perhaps, though, the greatest deception here is believing that issues like justification, the right use of the law, the proper subjects of baptism, the covenants of the scriptures, and so on and so on, perhaps the greatest deception is believing that issues like that are all trivial theological matters relegated to the academic elite. These are pursuits that pastors and well-educated laymen might pursue, but not the average Christian. Justification by faith alone? Who is and is not to be baptized? Or welcome to the Lord's Supper? How do we use the law? How do we apply a right hermeneutic of the scriptures in our own lives? How do we understand the covenant of Abraham, of David, of Moses, of Christ? These are not trivial theological pursuits, but one of the greatest deceptions in the church today is believing that they are. How likely are you to give a clear articulation not only of the gospel, but of the doctrine of justification on which the gospel rests? How able are you to demonstrate that baptism belongs to those who are of faith, you who belong to a Baptist church, do you know why you're Baptists? You who read the scriptures and affirm in its inerrancy, can you articulate its divisions, its covenants? Can you name all 66 books of the Bible? This is not simply to shame you for how little theological knowledge you might have, but merely to underscore the fact that these are not trivial matters. 
the entire letter to the Galatian churches rests on the fact that these small but significant doctrines make up the truth of our faith. Things like justification, things like scripture and the sufficiency of God's word, things like the covenants contained in the scriptures are not trivial. But we are often greatly deceived by believing that that's the case. Let me commend to you then faithful and robust theological training from within the church. There are no shortage of great books to read with brothers and sisters in the body. There are no shortages of men and women in the church to talk theology with. There is no shortage of churches that you can achieve a theological education in. In our own church, you have access to a full seminary's worth of teaching and education through Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, just to name a few. And my point here is not to to hammer you over the head with a systematic theology, but to remind you that such theological matters are not trivial, but are substantial. And so he's bewildered, perplexed, at how they could be so deceived by abandoning such crucial doctrines that uphold the glory of God and Christ in the gospel. So he warns them to return back to the gospel that they once believed. He does this in several ways. In verses 2 through 5, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Did you notice that? Question after question after question after question after question. And what he does here by asking these questions is pointing to the key of the spirit that unlocks the reality of justification by faith. He's pointing to the work and the presence of the spirit as proof that the work of salvation cannot be man, that the source and the basis of our salvation cannot be ourselves. It cannot be flesh-based, but only God. Notice what he says. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit? By works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? These questions really demonstrate three sets of contrasts. Notice in the text. The contrast of hearing and working. Works of the law, hearing by faith. That's the contrast. That's one set. There's another contrast of faith in the law. So you have hearing and working, faith or the law. Are you justified by faith or the law? And a third contrast here, spirit and the flesh. You see that there in the text. And so since all these contrasts, they parallel one another in the text, really they're saying then the same thing. They all demonstrate the same truth. That salvation is the work of God and not of man. That's the contrast, really, of all of Galatians. The work of God, God alone, versus the work of man. So Paul's point then, in this rhetorical section, verses 2 through 5 of the text, is that the key to understanding the reality of justification by faith is the Spirit of God. The Spirit is proof that the work of salvation cannot be based in fleshly obedience to the law. But God alone must do the work, and we believe by faith. He says otherwise, in effect, if you have the Spirit, then you must know by experience that God does not justify on the basis of your works or on the basis of your keeping the law. Do you really think, Galatians, that you earned his spirit by being obedient and righteous enough? Do you really think that having received the spirit in the first place, you still need to work to keep him? How stupid can you be? Sometimes tough love is the best medicine. So the argument here is that the Spirit points to the proof of the reality of justification by faith. You should know, Christian, 
that you have received the Spirit not by works of the law, but by hearing of faith. So how does the Spirit point to the reality of justification by faith? Three things in the text. First, look in verse 2. We learn that we receive the Spirit of God by hearing with faith, not the works of the law. We receive the Spirit of God by hearing with faith, not through the works of the law. The rhetorical question is this. Christian, what did you do to receive the Spirit? I want you to think in your, in your own salvation, when you became a Christian, if you can remember the time or the season, ask yourself, what did I do to receive the Spirit? What work did you perform? What law did you obey? Which made God say, you earned it. It's yours. Can you command the Spirit? John denies this very thing in John chapter 3. Jesus denies this when he compares the Spirit to a wind. Where we know not which way it blows, but in his sovereignty, he works in the heart of the elect and saves them not by their own work, not by their own effort, but through the working of God's mysterious grace and providence. Did you summon the Spirit with your prayer? Did you beckon it? No, the answer is, it must be. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 to the Corinthian churches, what do you have that you did not receive? That's the same word here. Receiving the Spirit in verse four, 7 of chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? That's a passive receiving of a gift of God. If then you received it, he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, if it was a gift and you did nothing to earn it, why do you pretend like you're smart enough to have earned it? Or John the Baptist would say in John chapter 3, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So take Paul's statement, what do you have that you have not received? And John's statement, that you can't receive even one thing unless our Father in heaven gives it to you. And then ask yourself this question with Paul. How did you receive the Spirit? Through works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now hearing implies an action, but this is a passive receiving so though you actively listened to the gospel preached and actively believed it, trusted, and gave yourself full-heartedly to it, you were merely a participant and a recipient of the grace of God as he worked in and through you. You heard with faith, and it was reckoned to you as righteousness. So we receive the Spirit by hearing with faith, not with works of the law. So the fact that you have the Spirit of God in you, Christian, is proof, demonstrable proof that you did not earn your salvation and were not justified by works of the law because you can't earn the Spirit. It's a gift of God. The second thing he says there in verse 3, the question is, have you, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Another rhetorical question. In other words, he says, no, you are to be perfected by the Spirit, not the flesh. So sanctification, which is the fancy word for our being made holy, conformed day by day into the image of Christ, like God, our sanctification is not simply predicated upon the Spirit, meaning established and built on the work of the Spirit, but it is actually accomplished by Him as well. He says, have, have begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's the rowboat analogy. That's going out, dropping the sails, and paddling back home with your hands. Why would you start with the Spirit and finish with the flesh? Not that you can. Notice what Paul says in Romans 8. 
says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul, again, gives proof that if you have the Spirit, you walk in life. You are perfected by the Spirit, not by flesh. Why would you then abandon the Spirit, which you have been given at the beginning of your Christian faith, so that you can simply walk in the flesh? This is death. If you walk according to the flesh, you will die. He'll go on in Romans 8. But if you live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you are not perfected by the flesh, but by the Spirit who works in you, enabling you and empowering you to obey Christ and his commandments. So Christian, not only do you know that you have the Spirit and therefore justification must be by faith and not by works, but also if you have the Spirit, you know that you cannot be perfected by the flesh because it's the Spirit's work in you that perfects you and sanctifies you. And then lastly, verse 5, we learn that the Spirit's connection to justification is that we benefit from the Spirit through our believing and not by our doing. We benefit from the Spirit through our believing and not by our doing. Again, look in verse 5 and what he says. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do this by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, upon what condition does God provide and continue to bless his people? Through your doing? or through your hearing, your working, or your believing? Is your health, is your joy, is the mysterious and the miraculous works of God, is this all owing to your doing and to your working? The answer is no. Your obedience does not demand God's work. Your faithfulness to his commands Does that mean he owes you a miracle? No. James says, James 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Meaning, God works in your midst, not only in your salvation, but in miracles and in wondrous ways providences that you are ultimately blind to, not because you have earned them or because he is paying a debt he owes you because of your righteousness, but because God alone is free to act. His grace is evident in the many many miracles of your existence. Your very breath and every gift is from the Father and is not owing to your work, not owing to your righteousness, but through the, through the Spirit, is owing to faith alone. So when Paul points to the presence of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life, he's making the case that Christians cannot and will not be ever saved by their works. The Spirit is proof. So let me ask this, and I ask it genuinely and unironically. How is your spiritual life? I know that's a phrase Christians often use of one another. How's how's your spiritual walk, brother? But I mean this in the real and literal sense of the word. How is your spiritual life? How is your life in the spirit? Are you like the Galatians spurning what God has graciously given to you through your works and efforts to accrue righteousness, setting aside the gift of God's grace in exchange for an inferior and a futile method of works righteousness? Or are you trusting in the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit 
who saves you not according to your own work, not according to the cleanliness of your life, of your trying to get it back together, not according to all the moral and good deeds you can do, not according to the right words you can say or even the right theology you can believe, but according to your faith in the finished work of Jesus who died on the cross for your sin. To turn your back on this is an offense to God. And so, friends, do not allow yourself to be duped by the enemy into thinking that you do not need the Spirit any longer. That you can, having begun by the Spirit now, can perfect yourself in the flesh. The Spirit of the age is embedded in our culture. The Spirit of independence and self-autonomy. That you have the ability to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to make something out of nothing, that you have the ingenuity and the wherewithal and the stick-to-itiveness to accomplish anything you put your mind to, but to deny the necessary divine aid in the spirit of stubborn independence, friends, is not only to ignore and misread our own country's history and ideals, for they heavily and very clearly depended on divine aid, but it's ultimately to join in league with Satan and his followers who are marching straight into the judgment of God by their works righteousness. So the charge before us is do not be foolish. Know that you have a very real enemy that seeks to kill and destroy you Christian may walk around in the jaws of the lion's mouth, not knowing how perilous your condition really is. Do not be caught up in the deception and the schemes of the enemy. Hold fast to the truth. So what does Paul do? Well, then he turns his attention into Abraham, and he'll really remain on Abraham as a figure over the next two chapters. And we'll spend a lot of time looking at Abraham and the covenant made with him. But Abraham really is a perfect case study for justification. Notice what it says in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So verse 6 is based off of verse 5, which says that God works and blesses, not according to works of the law, but by hearing with faith. And who hears with faith? Abraham, he believed God. He heard God's words, believed them with faith, and was counted righteous because of his faith. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's the point. Verse 9 and 7, this is where Paul's ultimately driving to. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Abraham is this case study for justification, not only because he's a perfect model for believing faith that we should imitate, but because demonstrating the truthfulness of justification by faith alone through the story of Abraham, I love that Paul does this, effectively pulls the rug out from under Paul's opponents. Who's the main character in the opponent's argument? It's not simply Moses who gave the law to Israel, but Abraham, the father of Israel. And so by taking Abraham's story and clearly demonstrating that justification by faith is true then as it is now, what higher authority can these legalists appeal? So how does Abraham's faith-based righteousness prove Paul's thesis that all men are justified by faith? That's the question we'll answer. How does Abraham's faith-based righteousness, quoted here, Genesis 12 and 15, Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness. How does Abraham's faith-based righteousness prove Paul's thesis that all men are justified by faith? The argument will go something like this. This is my paraphrase. Since God promised Abraham that all nations will be blessed, which includes all Gentile nations, 
the same MO of salvation that applied to him, namely hearing by faith, believing God, counted as righteous, the same MO of salvation that applied to him applies equally to those who, like him, would also believe. You see the argument? This is why Paul takes Abraham and says, Abraham believed. Abraham was justified by faith. And if Abraham is the father of many nations, then those who, like Abraham, believe by faith also receive the blessings promised to all nations, including Gentiles. So he goes on in the next several verses to demonstrate that fact. In other words, if you want to be righteous and highly favored like Abraham, then you must turn to God in faith, not to the law. You will, know, you will find no such things in your obedience to the law. Righteousness is by faith alone. Abraham is proof. So two, two things that we'll spend time on as we close. I say close. I mean, we probably got 20 minutes left. I don't know. <laughs> Let me find out what time it is. Okay, yeah, we're okay. Just give me the sign, John, if I go too long. First truth. This is important. This is Paul's point. Those who are of faith are the true heirs of the promise blessing. It's verse 7 and verse 9. Right out of the text. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Straight from the word. Those who are of faith, that is, who possess the kind of quality of faith that is a believing faith, like Abraham, belong to Abraham. The sons of Abraham. They are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. They are the true heirs of the promised blessing given to Abraham in Genesis. So hang with me here. I'm going to get a little bit into what we call covenant theology, just, just, just scratching the surface. Josh is your guy if you have more questions. Really, there are two conditions, or let's call them dimensions, of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. The first is that of a physical or a natural dimension. That the physical descendants of Abraham will be blessed and they will be a blessing to the nations. God promised to Abraham a land, a people, and a king, a, a ruler. In other words, there's a promise of a kingdom, a physical kingdom to Abraham, a son land, and a people. And this natural dimension of the Abrahamic covenant was conditioned upon circumcision. Eventually conditioned upon the law of Moses, which was given as further conditions of obedience to Israel through Moses. So the physical or the natural dimension of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing, the promises to Abraham was conditioned upon obedience first to circumcision, then to the law. So far, so good? Okay. That's why circumcision exists in the Old Testament. Now, there was a spiritual dimension of the covenant as well, which resided and was revealed and promised within the covenant. We're not speaking of two covenants, but of the same covenant, the physical dimension conditioned upon circumcision and obedience to the law eventually, and the spiritual dimension of the covenant, which reveals the promise of eternal life, of the eternal blessing which was promised to Abraham's descendants and of all nations, this promise was unconditional. How do we know that? Because it was promised to all nations, not to the Jews. It includes the Jews. But Abraham, we're told, becomes the father of a multitude of nations which presumably goes beyond the Israelites, beyond the Ephraites or the Ishmaelites who can 
trace, trace their lineage to Abraham, but well beyond to a multitude of Gentile nations. So the blessing and the promise was to be received and enjoyed by all nations, a multitude of nations, and Abraham was to be the father, the sort of fountainhead of that promise being true. Tracking with me so far? Physical descendant, promise, a land, a people, conditioned upon circumcision. That's how you knew you belonged to Abraham's people, by birth, by flesh. But the spiritual nature of the covenant was unconditional in that it was not con conditioned upon circumcision or obedience to the law, but by some other thing that Abraham possessed and which all nations could receive, though they were not to be circumcised or possessive of the law. In other words, there was a distinct spiritual component apart from the natural component. And this is clear, I think, in Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees in, in John chapter 8. So turn with me, John chapter 8, verse 37. I'd read it, but I didn't write it down. So John chapter 8. And you think Paul is excoriating. Wait till you hear Jesus. John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 37 through 47. John or Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are confronting and questioning him. This is what he says. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Seeds, physical descendants of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. But I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. Uh-oh. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, Well, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed God. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Notice he's not now speaking anymore of a physical descendant. But now he's speaking about a spiritual seed. He's talking about a different descendant. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth... You do not believe me. For which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So notice what he says. He concedes, yes, you are from Abraham's offspring. You've got patriarchal DNA running through you. Congratulations. It doesn't mean you belong to him. In fact, Abraham belonged to God, but God is not your father. The devil is your father. So you can see in Jesus' rebuke the spiritual component of the covenant that he's talking about here. There's a spiritual component that is distinct apart from the natural. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for not having the kind of faith and belief in what God said as true, otherwise they would hear Jesus' words and believe them. And this is what Paul means, go back to Galatians, this is what Paul means when he says that the gospel was preached to Abraham through the words of the promise of the covenant. Verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So this is what Paul's meaning, that there is a spiritual component 
in the gospel that was preached to the covenant, the promises and the blessings of the covenant preached to Abraham, which he believed and heard by faith and was counted righteous because of it, demonstrates that the gospel is there to be held and believed by all those who with faith, like Abraham, hold fast to it. The implication is this. Anyone in the world can receive and participate in the covenantal promises of God, even the promises made to Abraham. So long as they do so through the only proper mode of receiving and participating in those promises. Faith. That's the promise available to all people, Jew, Gentile, American, African, European, Russian. All can believe, all can receive the promises if you receive them by faith. That was in the very beginning. That was the promise God made to Abraham. And all Paul's doing is pulling that thread through the work of Christ and saying, Gentile, to receive the promise made to Abraham, receive the truth by faith in Christ. Abraham believed God. We believe God. Christ is the word of God and the blessings of God. So we must have faith. Thus ends the covenant theology portion. Let me speak two things then about faith. Faith in whom? Faith in Christ. This is important. Not faith in yourself, your ability, or another person outside of yourself only, Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. So the promises of God, meaning the promises God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to David to Moses, all of the blessings and the promises in the Old Testament that you can read, Christian, are yours in Christ. That's how you have them. That's how you lay hold of them. That's how they are true for you. All the promises of God are yes in Christ, or as the KJV would put it, yes and amen in Christ. Or Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 9. For I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, listen, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, like Abraham, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So it's faith in Christ. Now I want to read Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there if you'd like, verse 11 through 21, or you can listen. Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore, He's writing out to Gentile believers in Ephesus. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's condemnation. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing, this is it, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so then, this is the beauty and the promise of the gospel, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but our fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Amen. So faith in Christ is what unites you to the promises of blessing, of eternal life, and joy and prosperity. It is in Christ. And faith is the key. 
But faith does not come from ingenuity. It does not come from reading. It does not come from meditating. Faith comes by hearing. This is why Paul was so clear talking about hearing with faith, listening, receiving, believing, hearing. You know the passage, Romans 10, verse 13, 17. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call upon him whom they have not heard? And how are they to believe in him who they have, have they not believed? And how are they to believe in him who have they not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So Paul's point is this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith in Christ unites us to the promises of God made to Abraham. If you want to receive those blessings, you must by faith, like Abraham, believe the promises of God in Christ. But you believe and exercise faith by hearing the gospel and responding to it savingly. For how else can Paul say, look in verse 1 of chapter 3 again, that it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now to my knowledge, Christ was crucified in Jerusalem, not in Antioch, not in Galatia, not in Asia Minor, but in Jerusalem. Are we to believe that the Galatian churches all visited the cross at the moment of his crucifixion? No. So how can Paul say in Galatians 3 that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified before their very eyes? Well, what did Paul do? He preached. And what did they do? They heard and they believed. So preaching, Paul's powerful preaching, publicly portrayed Christ as crucified in such a manner that the Spirit working through that preaching and in the heart of the hearers saved them. So Paul can rightly say that it was before their very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Friends, it is true this very morning, insofar as I have preached the gospel faithfully, that I have publicly portrayed Christ as crucified to you. So that you could say that you have not been there at the cross. You have seen Christ and him crucified because you have heard by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for you. And so the truth is, the main truth here is that all of those who are of faith are the true heirs of the promise. The second truth, very quickly, is that the new covenant is the consummated reality. The new covenant is the consummated reality of that promise. For the old has passed away and the new has come. And I say new, not simply in its administration or its outward form, but new in its substance. It is a new covenant in that it is a covenant of grace promised through the prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, chapters 30 and 31, 33. It's new in its very substance. What was before revealed and promised in the covenants of old by farther steps, as the Baptist confession would put it, is now established and brought to fruition. Paul talks about this mystery of Christ hidden in ages past but is now being revealed. That is the gospel of the Gentile, to the Gentiles, they might belong to Christ. And so here's the point. Those looking forward to this reality, Abraham, the patriarchs, those who in faith look forward to this reality, share in the same hope and blessing as those like us looking backward to this reality since both look to Christ in faith. And both, in looking to Christ in faith, are declared righteous, justified, by that faith. Verse 9 again, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the men of faith. Listen, you set your eyes on Christ, you set your eyes on the same man crucified as Abraham did. Abraham might not have known his name, but he understood the promise would come. Adam would not have known the name of the seed of the woman who would crush the, heel, the head of the serpent, but he knew that a seed would come. They looked 
to this promised son. And we look to him as well. And because we share in the same faith, we possess the same hope and we walk together in the same faith and household of God. Remember John chapter 8 when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisee, he says a little later on in verse 56, your, this is by the way, they picked up stones after this to kill him. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day He saw it and was glad. So Abraham looked forward to the hope of the reality of a righteousness that would come and deliver upon the promise given to him. We don't look forward but back to that promise brought to reality in Christ. So three quick exhortations and then I'm done, I swear. One, I want you to rejoice in the global breadth breadth of the gospel to unite all peoples to Christ through faith. One of the biggest things we can do is take this to the gospel and tell to every tribe, tongue, and nation the gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. Rejoice that you, Gentile, assuming you have no Jewish DNA, have access to the promise made to Abraham through faith in Christ. And this is true for every person on earth. The free offer of grace in Christ is available to all men, women, and children who have ears to hear by faith. Secondly, the mission of the true sons of Abraham, as we are united to him and the blessing of his covenant by faith, is to bless the world. The same mission, to be a blessing to all nations, because we are true sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, belonging to the same faith, means we share in the same mission, to be a blessing to all nations. We do so then by proclaiming the glory and the majesty of Christ to all who would hear. It is not my job alone to preach the gospel, but our job, church, to go and preach and proclaim the gospel to all nations. That means you go, you send, you support, you preach to all nations. And lastly, I exhort you, friends, to imitate the faith of Abraham. Imitate the faith of Abraham which was counted to him as righteousness. Quickly, I want to read, we read this last week in our New Testament reading, but Romans 4, Paul says this about Abraham, that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, God had made a promise to him, and when he considered how old he was or how barren Sarah was, His faith did not weaken. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. How? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. For it would be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So when we imitate the faith of Abraham, which is what Paul intends us to do, we do so convinced, fully convinced, that God is able to deliver upon his promises and indeed has delivered upon his promise to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. That is, all Gentile nations can come to receive the true blessing of eternal life by believing in what Abraham believed, that is, God's word. So be strong in your faith. Work against the enemy and against your own sin so that you may not waver or stumble in your belief, but give glory to God in full assurance and conviction that God is the promise keeper and that all those who, like Abraham, believe in the promise of God enjoy the blessing promised to him and to all nations. Let's pray. Father, thankful for your mercy and your grace once again. I pray, as I have trespassed on time this morning, that your word would be made manifest in our hearts in such a way that we would behold the glory of God and that we would respond with faith. Uh, God, I ask 
that you would humble our own hearts now as we sing and prepare to take the Lord's Supper together so that we could remind ourselves and remind others that we are sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, descendants and offspring, true offspring, and the heirs of promise because of our faith in Christ, what he has done for us. We ask this and much more in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Um, All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.